This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. If the faith at home is neglected, if care is not taken to the rising generation, will not the present revival of religion in a short time die away? Will it not be as the historian speaks of the Roman state in its infancy? Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by John Wesley in the 1750s. I think this sermon recording is, is kind of neat. The narrator that read uh, this sermon today, Ed Backel, he started working on the sermon and he, he emailed us and he said, you know, what What if we did kind of like an open air sound of this? That's probably how these people would have heard it, you know, sitting in a pew, sitting back in the audience and it would kind of give it a unique sound. And, and I think it sounds... It sounds really cool. I think it works. It's like we teleported a microphone back to uh, you know the audience of this sermon being preached, and you're just another listener along with the others listening to this sermon. So, so it's a little bit more of an open air sound, but I think it's pretty neat. Troy, we have uh, some Patreons to shout out, don't we? Yes, we have a few new names that have joined us on Patreon, and we are always appreciative of those who give to what we're doing, helps make everything a lot easier. One of them wished to remain anonymous, and they are in Australia, so we a big thank you to them, and they probably know who they are. Uh, The others we wanted to say thank you to are Gage, Kelly, Corey, and Ellen. Thank you all for joining us and Patreon and helping us in what we are doing. We are also doing a new bit. We want to encourage people and say thank you to those who leave comments on the episodes as they go out on places like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever they go. This week comes from Phil. His comment was, really enjoyed this Charles Hodge sermon. Great job, Revive Studios. Very encouraging. Thank you, Phil, for putting that out there for us. And if that you was leave a pretty com- good episode. It was a great episode. Yeah. And if you put a comment on our episodes, it will get entered in and we will select one to read next time. Joel, it is incredible, I think, that we have made it over a hundred episodes into Revive Thoughts, and we've only done one episode on John Wesley. And that was really more just to cover the feud that he and George Whitfield had going on for a while, that between Arminians and Calvinists. That episode is great, and when you hear how they bury the hatchet and listen to the sermon at George Whitfield's sermon, you'll probably be very deeply touched. But again, it's incredible we made it this long without without including one of the biggest preachers that ever lived. Yeah, I mean, we you say that we've only done one episode on John Wesley, and technically that's true. But I feel like I feel like in my heart that we've done so many more, just because yes. he finds himself in all of these different people's lives, all these different stories. John Wesley definitely is a, a crossover character in a lot of other episodes that we've done. As a reminder, John Wesley born in the year 1703, and he had 19 brothers and sisters, 19. That's a lot. I cannot fathom. I have one brother. (laughs) We had a small family. One brother here too. And I mean, I believe there was a a reality TV show on just the idea of 19. Was was that the Duggars that they were 19 kids? I don't know. I don't know how many how many kids were. You can write in. The Cheaper the Dozen movie was the the most kids. The 19's a lot. And they weren't even like the oldest brother. Usually it's like the oldest one that's the famous one. These are like 15 and 18 or something like that. Like they're way down at the bottom. Yes, his brother Charles Wesley, who might also be a name that you recognize 
they'd go into ministry together. Charles Wesley is more, I'd, I think, more famous for his hymns that he wrote. We talked a lot about John Wesley in our episode on George Whitfield, so we're not going to go into his time at Oxford a whole lot because we cover most of it there, but Wesley and Charles and Whitfield founded the Holy Club there at Oxford, which was this group of people that were passionate about trying to spend every moment of each day focused on serving God in some way or another. They wanted to be as holy as possible with the way that they approached life and God. Something that I have a hard time with is how someone can feel as though they are following God for years, very dedicated, and anyone on the outside would say they're a Christian, and then suddenly they, they come out and they're like, I'm a Christian now, and you're like, wait, wh- what do you call all that time before this? And that happens, I think, and to us in life, we'll see that happen. That's always something that surprises me. Uh, but John Wesley, he falls into that kind of boat um, where he may be, in fact, the craziest case of this that I've ever really seen. He would preach um, in different towns, and while he's preaching there, they would throw rotten fruit at him. He constantly prayed, memorizing scripture, reading God's word. They literally put together, again, the Holy Club designed to get you into God's word and get you in time with God every day. Yet, despite all of this, John Wesley doesn't consider himself saved Later on, he'll look back and go, yeah, I wasn't really saved yet. Even after I went to be a missionary to the colony of Georgia and I pastored a church, I still wasn't saved yet. Yeah, there was a a long period in those early days of both Charles and John Wesley that they they spent wrestling with whether or not they were actually saved. In a lot of ways, much of their early years could be described as them trying to find their way to God. And it's amazing that we see this occasionally throughout... revive thoughts and even you know just in people around us in modern day people missionaries pastors preachers people that took a lot of scorn for god and yet weren't saved at that time you know would would later profess that uh they came to know christ uh, later or at least had that more reaffirmed at a later point they were ministering in georgia and uh, grant it was not going well for them and you know you you might even look at it as god trying to expose their works but in georgia uh, Wesley, uh, John, and Charles lost a lot of their heart. John's, he was he was very strict man. John was a very strict man. And that had given them a, a tough time in England and a terrible time in Georgia. People didn't really appreciate the, his rules and ideas he had about God. And on top of that, he fell in love with a woman named Sophie Hopke. And we could, Troy and I could just talk. We could talk for a whole episode just trying to theorize <laughs> What was going on with John Wesley and Sophie? What was that relationship like? Some describe it as a a toward love affair. Others as a reckless power move by a preacher. And others still describe it as poor John getting his heart broken by by a woman. Whatever happened, again, we're not quite sure, but John ended up not getting the girl. And afterwards, he he was kind of kind of spiteful towards towards this woman in the church he wouldn't uh give her communion he kind of exclude her from the communion and also not just excluding her from communion but her and her new husband that she married after uh things didn't work out with him so and and john's sore loser yeah defense is well they weren't christians and here's why i can tell you they're not living for the lord and i can't give communion to non Christians, it's, it's sounding pretty shady there. John. It doesn't sound great, and, and of course, the irony is, years later, he would look back and say, "Well, I wasn't a Christian." So here he right. is trying to hold faithful to the idea of communion while himself not being. Again, two years later, he go, "That wasn't a Christian doing that." Yeah. There's a lot going on there, but you can see him not behaving the best. And 
We'll get to it in a little while, but love was not John Wesley's strongest suit. This affair ends terribly with John and Court and eventually leaving Georgia. The future founder of Methodism is broken at this point. He doesn't look like he's going to become some great thing. In fact, he really reminded me of the character, if you've forgotten, very early on in the show, we talked about Jonathan Swift, and Jonathan Swift rose to prominence, but then he got cast out and basically thrown to like the bottom rung of society, where he went from the king's palace almost to just a little chapel with like 12 people visiting it, and it just cost him everything to get thrown out to the bottom. And I think you can see a very similar situation here where Wesley returns from America just broken spiritually in a lot of ways. He didn't he didn't set out and do what he thought he was going to do and he's he's having to wrestle with who he is in a lot of ways. He's dejected and struggling. And it's the reverse of George Whitfield who George Whitfield went to Georgia, had this amazing time, really got close to God there, rethought his life, and he's coming back all excited like a year later. John Wesley could not have had a worse time in Georgia. Charles Wesley uh, ended up feeling a bit ill. During the night, he felt himself brought to Christ, and he ended up writing a hymn on that occasion. Scholars today aren't entirely sure what hymn that was. He wrote over 6,000 during his lifetime, so they're not quite sure what hymn it was that he wrote during this occasion, but Charles Wesley would point back at this night as uh, his, his moment of salvation, his moment of understanding. Three days later, three days after that event, John Wesley was teaching, and he was listening as someone read Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans, and the idea of justification by faith alone, it it hit him. It it struck a chord with him in a way that it hadn't before, and he began to change, and within a few hours, he sang that he believed to his friends. His heart had been warmed to the true gospel, and he felt free from works, is, is how he puts it. He said everything before that was, quote, fair summer weather religion. Good for the good times, but worth nothing when life was hard and filled with works. To me, this is it is crazy. I mean, he had went through the Holy Club. They wrote books and stuff that are still useful and used by Methodists today. They'd started a literal denomination called Methodism. Uh, George Whitfield had gotten saved, spending time with them. All these things are happening, and and their missionaries again. They're they're suffering a lot, and yet they're like, they're, I'm not saved. This wasn't legitimate until this moment when I feel the joy of the Lord, and I. I, it's just kind of, it, it's, again, to me, I'm like, I just can't imagine living that hard for God when you're not for God. It, it's it's hard to wrap your head around, but I think, I mean, there is, I mean, obviously there's difference than head knowledge and there's, I mean, when the spirit clicks with you yeah. and, and makes you aware of something, there's a difference between knowing yeah. all the right answers and when the spirit. Well, I agree there's a difference between, man, these guys spent like 10 hours a day in the Bible. I think it's because they know that's the right orphans. thing. Well, they, nobody else was doing it. They were the only ones doing the right thing at that time. And yet, despite doing the right thing, taking a lot of heat for it for 15 or so years, again, it's, to me, it's just like, I, sure. I, I, when I remember being a non-Christian, I don't think I'd have been that committed to the, to the cause, mm. I guess is what I'm saying. Like, that would not have been of interest to me. It's hard, it's, it's hard for me to imagine what a non-Christian got out of those 15 years that kept them coming back. And I just can only imagine God was just very slowly revealing himself to them. And it just, he's letting them realize the difference between his presence and not his presence. And just, it took that maybe amount of time to grow those seeds and the fruit but yeah it's it's a to me that was a crazy part of the story that we've talked about john wesley Mm -hmm. multiple times and half the times we were talking about him that would have been during what he would have considered the unsaved portions of his life yeah that's yeah that's yeah when you when you hear about john wesley or charles wesley the events that are most publicized and that most christians will reference today again most of those were 
pre their claimed salvation. Exactly. So yeah, that kind of blows your mind. It it makes you question me. I'm not living as hard as unsaved Charles (laughs) and John were living for God. I need to step it up sometimes. All right. When Whitfield got banned from preaching in the churches, he started open air preaching. We talked about that a ton in one of our George Whitfield episodes. Thousands got saved and heard the gospel. Whitfield invited Wesley to join him. And Wesley, he was nervous. He wasn't really feeling this. Uh, But he started doing it with him, and he had the same results. This kicks off the Great Awakening. Now, we could go in a lot of directions on how we want to take you with John Wesley from here. But for the way this sermon goes, and for the fact that we haven't really talked about John's home life up until now, I think that's where we want to take it. Um, If you want to learn more about the Great Awakening, we've done Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We covered a lot of that. George Whitfield, we have covered the Great Awakening multiple times. It's a very important part of our faith and our faith story. But for this one, we really want to look at John Wesley's life at home. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. John Wesley and Charles did not have the best parent situation. Their parents would sometimes get into huge fights and often about politics or culture. They would live away from each other for upwards of a year at a time due to their dislike of each other. Makes you wonder how they got 19 kids if you're spending a year apart at times. But That's what I was wondering. Yeah. Maybe because of this and because of John's hectic traveling, preaching 40,000 sermons in his life over all the world, he and his wife didn't didn't have the best relationship it's it would seem wesley married molly in 1751 and by 1758 she had left him she was a widow of four children when they married john wesley was a traveling minister who was never home so it's it wasn't wasn't a great setup if you were yeah if you were stalking them you know if you were putting points on whether they were going to make it or not you might have had some reasons to doubt your hand sad story all around uh it definitely is Um, i think both had problems here john was just out too much and molly was very insecure that he was spending time with women uh from the church and and maybe there was some evidence that she wrote in one of her journals that one time she thought she saw him with the same woman you know the night before and the morning of was, you know, there's some kind of connection there. Her, in her eyes, yes, there. This man is only traveling around so much because he's got some, uh, he's got some lust in his eyes. On the other side, uh, a man once walked into the Wesley home to find Wesley, John Wesley, being dragged by his hair across the floor of his home, and he just kind of was like, well, "What is happening here?" So Molly was certainly not a perfect person either. Uh, in both cases, I think they had some flaws. He only wrote one note in his journal the entire time that we know about her. Uh, and and this is what the scholars say. I kind of wonder if he had some way to pull her out of his journal. Like when you, if you have a breakup in high school and you delete them from your Facebook or Instagram, you kind of take away any 
image knowledge that i wonder if he went through his journal and white <laughs> you know, i'm just saying that's what i think he might have did because they only have one acknowledgement you sound like you're speaking from personal experience i'm just saying that's what people do usually suddenly like all their profile pictures are five years older because they lost all the you know um and so i wonder if he just had some way to remove her from his journal that you couldn't tell but either way the only reference to her in his journal was she left this day pretty much it is a paraphrase she left this day i will not remember her um so not a great relationship maybe you're asking why would i want to learn about home life from what sounds like a train wreck and i would say he he usually is used when you hear him in sermons and examples he's used as a cautionary tale against marriage and family and making your ministry a priority over your wife and i think that's very fair but i think there's also a good reason to maybe listen to this sermon called faith at home by him yeah and i think Wesley learned a lot throughout his life and throughout these experiences. I mean, uh, learning from your mistakes is sometimes the greatest way to uh, really understand a lesson and really understand the implications that consequences that have that actions have. In the same way that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, despite failing at marriage to one woman, Wesley preaches that sermon that it impacts a lot of truth about family, about raising kids at home even though he himself failed at his marital duties it seems like he learned a lot from that experience and uh, he took raising his children and raising his home uh, seriously throughout the latter part of his life For me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua 24, verse 15. In the verses we read that Joshua, now old, gathered the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges and officers, and they presented themselves before the Lord, Joshua 15. And Joshua rehearsed to them the great things which God had done for their fathers, concluding with that strong exhortation now therefore fear the lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the jordan and in egypt can anything be more astonishing than this that even in egypt yes and in the wilderness where they were daily fed and both day and night guided by miracle that the israelites as a group still worshiped idols in flat defiance of the lord their god he proceeds, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A resolution worthy of an early saint who had had experience from his youth up of the goodness of the Lord to whom he had devoted himself and the advantages of his service, how much is it to be wished that all who have tasted that the Lord is gracious, and all whom he has brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the bondage of sin, would adopt this wise resolution. Then would the work of the Lord prosper in our lands. Then would his word run and be glorified. Then would multitudes of sinners in every place stretch out their hands to God until the glory of the Lord covered the land as the waters cover the sea. On the contrary, what will the consequence be if they do not adopt this resolution? 
if the faith at home is neglected, if care is not taken to the rising generation, will not the present revival of religion in a short time die away? Will it not be as the historian speaks of the Roman state in its infancy, res unitis aetis, an event that has its beginning and end within the space of one generation? Will it not be a confirmation of that melancholy remark of Luther's that a revival of religion never lasts longer than one generation? By a generation, as he said it himself, he means 30 years. But, blessed be God, this remark does not hold with regard to the present instance. For seeing this revival from its rise in the year 1729 has already lasted above 50 years in my time. Have we not already seen some of the unhappy consequences of good men not adopting this resolution? Is there not a generation rising, even within our own days, from pious parents that do not know the Lord, that have neither his love in their hearts nor his fear before their eyes? How many of them already despise their fathers and mock at the counsel of their mothers? How many are utter strangers to real religion, to the life and power of it? And not a few have shaken off all religion, have been abandoned themselves to all manner of wickedness. Now, although this may sometimes be the case, even of children educated in a pious manner, yet this case is very rare. I have met with some, but not many instances of it. The wickedness of the children is generally owing to the fault or neglect of their parents. For it is a general, though not universal, rule that there have been exceptions. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. But what is the purpose of this resolution? I and my house will serve the Lord. In order to understand and practice this, let us ask what it is to serve the Lord. Secondly, who is included in that expression, my house? And thirdly, what can we do that we and our house may serve the Lord? For starters, we may ask what it is to serve the Lord, not as a Jew, but as a Christian, not only with outward service, though some of the Jews undoubtedly went farther than this, but with inward, with the service of the heart, worshiping him in spirit and truth. The first thing implied in this service is faith. Believing in the name of the Son of God, we cannot perform an acceptable service to God till we believe in Jesus Christ that he sent. Here, the spiritual worship of God begins. As soon as anyone had the witness in himself, as soon as he could say, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, he is able truly to serve the Lord. As soon as he believes he loves God, which is another thing implied in serving the Lord, we love him because he first loved us, of which faith is the evidence. The love of a pardoning God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given for us. Indeed, this love may admit a thousand different shapes, but still every one, as long as he believes, may truly declare before God, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that my desire is for you and for the remembrance of your name. And if any man truly loves God, he must love his brother also. Gratitude to our Creator will surely produce benevolence to our fellow creatures. 
If we love him, we must love one another as Christ loved us. We feel our souls enlarged in love toward every child of man and toward all the children of God. We put on hearts of kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, forgiving one another. If we have a complaint against any, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. One more thing is implied in serving the Lord, namely obeying him. Steadily walking in all his ways, doing his will from the heart like those his servants above who do his pleasure, who keep his commandments, carefully avoid whatever he has forbidden and zealously do whatever he has given them to do. Studying constantly to have a conscience devoid of offenses toward God and toward man. Second, I and my house will serve the Lord is what every real Christian says. But who is included in that expression, my house? This is the next point to be considered. The person in your house that claims your first and nearest attention is undoubtedly your wife. Seeing that you are to love her, even as Christ hath loved the church when he laid his life down for it, that he might purify it for himself, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The same goal is one every husband is to pursue in all his interactions with his wife. To use every possible means that she may be freed from every spot and may walk unblameable in love. Next to your wife are your children, immortal souls, whom God has for a time entrusted to your care that you may train them up in all holiness and fit them for the enjoyment of God in eternity. This is a glorious and important trust. Seeing one soul is of more value than all of creation except it. Every child, therefore, you are to watch over with the utmost care, that when you are called to give an account to each, to the Father of Spirits, you may give your accounts with joy and not with grief. Let us ask in the third place, what can we do with all these that may serve the Lord? May we not attempt first to restrain them from all outward sin, from profane swearing, from taking the name of God in vain, from doing any needless work or taking any pastime on the Lord's day. This labor of love you owe even to your visitors and so much more to your wife and children. The visitors over whom you have the least influence, you may restrain by argument or mild persuasion. If you find that after repeated trials they will not yield to either one or the other, it is your duty to set ceremony aside and dismiss them from your house. Servants also, whether every day or for a longer period of time, if you cannot get them to cease outwardly sinful behavior, either by reasoning added to your own conduct or by gentle or severe reproofs given frequently, then you must dismiss them from your family's employ, even if it should be inconvenient. But you cannot dismiss your wife, unless it, of course, for the cause of fornication, that is adultery. What then can be done if she is taken in by an habitual sin? It seems to me that all that can be done in this case is to be done partly by your own example, partly by argument and persuasion, each applied in such a way as dictated by Christian prudence. If evil can be ever be overcome, it must be overcome by good. It cannot be overcome by evil. We cannot beat the devil with his own weapons. 
Therefore, if this evil cannot be overcome by good, we are called to suffer it. We are then called to say, this is the cross which God has chosen for me. He surely permits it for wise ends. Let him do what seems good to him good. Whenever he sees it to be best, he will remove this cup from me. Meanwhile, continue in earnest prayer, knowing that with God no word is impossible, and that he will either in due time take the temptation away or make it a blessing to your soul. Your children, while they are young, you may restrain from evil, not only by advice, persuasion, and reproof, but also by correction. Just remember that this method is to be used last, not till all others have been tried and found to be ineffective. And even then, you should take the utmost care to avoid the very appearance of passion and anger. Whatever is done should be done with mildness, indeed with kindness too. Otherwise your own spirit will suffer loss and the child will reap little advantage. But some will tell you all this is lost work. A child should not be corrected at all. Instruction, persuasion, and advice will be sufficient for any child without correction, especially if gentle reproof is added here and there. I answer, there may be particular instances where this method may be successful, but you must not in any way lay this down as a universal rule. Unless you suppose yourself wiser than Solomon, or to speak more properly, wiser than God, for it is God himself who knows best his own creatures that has told us expressly, he that spares the rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastises him, Proverbs 13. And upon this is grounded that plain commandment directed that all fear God. Chasten your son while there is hope and let not your soul spare for his crying, Proverbs 19. May we not attempt, secondly, to instruct them to take care that every person who is under our roof has all such knowledge as is necessary to salvation, to see that our wife and children be taught all those things to which belong to their eternal peace. Yes, and you should take care that they have some time every day for reading, meditation, and prayer. And you should ask whether or not they actually use that time in the exercises for which it is allowed. Neither should any day pass without family prayer, seriously and solemnly performed. You should particularly attempt to instruct your children early, plainly, frequently, and patiently. Instruct them early from the first hour that you perceive reason begins to dawn. Truth may then begin to shine upon the mind far earlier than we are expecting it. And whoever watches the first openings of the understanding may, little by little, give good material for it to work upon, and may turn the eye of the sun toward good things as well as toward bad or trifling ones. Whenever a child begins to speak, you may be assured that reason begins to work. I know of no cause why a parent should not just then begin to speak of the best things, the things of God. And from that time, no opportunity should be lost of instilling all truths as they are capable of receiving. But the speaking to them early will not avail unless you likewise speak plainly. Use such words as little children may understand, just as they use themselves. Carefully observe the few ideas which they have already and attempt to add what you say upon them. To take a little example, 
Bid the child to look up and ask, what do you see there? The sun. See how bright it is? Feel how warm it shines upon your hand? Look how it makes the grass green? But God, though you cannot see him, is above the sky and is a great deal brighter than the sun. It is he, it is God that makes the grass and the flowers grow, that makes the trees green and the fruit to come upon them. Think what he can do. He can do whatever he pleases. He could strike you or me dead in a moment, but he loves you and he loves you to do good. He loves to make you happy. Should you then not love him? And he will teach you how to love him. While you are speaking about this or in any lesson, you should be continually lifting up your heart to God, begging him to open the eyes of their understanding and to pour his light upon them. He and he alone can make them to differ from the beasts that perish. He alone can apply your words to their hearts, without which all your labor will be in vain. But whatever the Holy Ghost teaches, there is no delay in learning. But if you would see the fruit of your labor, you must teach them not only early and plainly, but frequently too. It would be of little or no service to do so only once or twice a week. How often do you feed their bodies? Not less than three times a day. And is the soul of less value than the body? Will you not feed this as often? If you find this a tiresome task, there is certainly something wrong in your own mind. You do not love them enough. Or you do not love him who is your father and their father. Humble yourself before him. Beg that he would give you more love and love will make the labor light. But it will not be successful to teach them both early, plainly and frequently unless you persevere. Never leave off and never suspend your labor of love until you see the fruit of it. But in order to do this, you will find the absolute need of being endued with power from on high, without which I am persuaded none ever had or will have patience sufficient to the work. Otherwise, the inconceivable dullness of some children and the giddiness or perverseness of others would induce them to give up this task and let them follow their own imagination. And suppose, after you have done this, after you had taught your children from their early infancy, in the simplest manner you could, omitting no opportunity and persevering from there, you did not presently see any fruit of your labor. You must not conclude that there will be none. Possibly the bread which you have cast upon the waters may be found after many days. The seed which has long remained in the ground may at length spring up into a plentiful harvest especially if you do not restrain prayer before God, if you continue constantly with your passion. In the meantime, whatever the effect this has upon others, your reward is with the Most High. Many parents, on the other hand, presently see the fruit of the seed they have sown and have the comfort of seeing their children grow in grace in the same proportion as they grow in years. Yet they have not done all. They have still upon their hands another task, sometimes of no small difficulty. Their children are now old enough to go to school, but to what school is it advisable to send them? Let it be remembered that I do not speak to the wild, giddy, thoughtless world, but to those that fear God. I ask them, for what reason do you send your children to school? 
Why, that they may be fit to live in the world? In which world do you mean? This or the next? Perhaps you thought of this world only and had forgotten that there is a world to come, yes, and one that will last forever? I pray you take this into your account and send them to such teachers as will keep it always before their eyes. Otherwise, to send them to school, permit me to speak plainly, is little better than sending them to the devil. At any event, then send your boys, if you have any concern for their souls, not to any of the large boarding schools, for they are nurseries of all manner of wickedness. Send them to private school, kept by some pious men who will attempt to instruct a small number of children in religion and learning together. But what will I do with my girls? By no means send them to a large boarding school. In these seminaries, too, the children teach one another pride, vanity, affectation, intrigue, shallowness, and in short, everything which a Christian woman better not learn. Suppose a girl was well inclined to follow God, yet what would she do in a crowd of children? Not one of whom has any thought of saving her soul in such company, especially as their whole conversation points another way and turns upon things which one would wish she'd never think of. I never knew a pious, sensible woman that had been raised in a large boarding school who did not waver. One might as well send a young maid to be taught by drunks. But where then shall I send my girls, you ask? If you cannot teach them up yourself, as my mother did, who brought up seven daughters to years of maturity, send them to some school that truly fears God, one whose teachers have a good theology to her scholars, and one who has only so many students that they can watch over so that they can properly give account to God. Forty years ago, I did not know such a school in England, but now you may find several. We suppose your sons have now been long enough at school and you are thinking of some career for them. Before you determine anything on this, be sure that your eyes are focused heavenward. Is it so? Is it your view to please God only? It is well if you take him into account. But surely, if you live or fear God yourself, this will be your first consideration. In what business will your son be most likely to love and serve God? In what employment will he have the greatest advantage for laying up treasure in heaven? I have been shocked beyond measure in observing how little this is attended to, even by pious parents. Even believing parents often consider only how he may get the most money, not how he may get the most holiness. Even these, upon this glorious motive, send him to an unbelieving teacher and into a school where there is not taught the very form, much less the power of religion. Upon this motive, they fix in him a business which will necessarily expose him to such temptations as will leave him not a probability, but maybe a possibility of serving God. Savage parents, unnatural, diabolical cruelty. If you believe there is another life after this one, but what will I do? Set God before your eyes and do all things with a view to please him. Then you will find a teacher of whatever profession that loves or at least fears God. And you will find a school where there is a form of religion, if not the power also, 
Your son may nevertheless serve the devil if he wills, but it is probable he will not. Do not regard if he gets less money, provided he gets more holiness. It is enough. Though he has less earthly goods, if he secures the possession of heaven. There is one circumstance where you will have great need for the wisdom from above. Your son or daughter is now of the age to marry and desires your advice on the matter. Now, you know what the world calls a good match, one whereby much money is gained or temporary happiness. Undoubtedly, it is so if it is true that money always brings happiness, but I doubt it is true. Money seldom brings happiness, either in this world or in the world to come. Then let no man deceive you with vain words. Riches and happiness seldom dwell together. Therefore, if you are wise, you will not seek riches for your children by their marriage. See that your eye is singularly focused on this also. Aim simply at the glory of God and the real happiness of your children, both in time and eternity. It is a melancholy thing to see how Christian parents rejoice in selling their son or their daughter to a wealthy non-believer. Do you seriously call this a good match? You fool, by lack of reason, you may call hell a good lodging and the devil a good teacher. Oh, learn a better lesson from a better teacher in heaven. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, both for yourself and your children, and all of the things will be added to you. It is completely true if you are steadily determined to walk this path to attempt by every possible means that you and your house may serve the Lord, that every member of your family may worship him, not only in form, but in spirit and in truth. You will need to use all the grace, all the courage, all the wisdom which God has given you, for you will find such hindrances in the way as only the mighty power of God can enable you to break through. You will have all the saints in the world to grapple with, who will think you carry just a ways too far. You will have all the powers of darkness against you, employing both force and fraud, and above all, the deceitfulness of your own heart, which, if you listen to it, will supply you with many reasons why you should be a little more comfortable in the world. But as you have begun, go on in the name of the Lord and in the power of his might, Set the smiling and frowning world with the prince of it at defiance. Follow reason and the oracles of God, not the fashions and customs of men. Keep yourself pure. Whatever others do, let you and your house adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let you, your wife, your children, and your servants be all on the Lord's side sweetly drawing together in one yoke, walking in all his commandments and ordinances till every one of you will receive his own reward according to his labor. One thing through this sermon, you hear him, you'll hear him talk about sending your kids to school. And I do want to remind any listeners if we thought that this was secretly a homeschooling sermon propaganda kind of thing like what we did with the prohibition sermon uh no 
this was you know 250 years ago he's talking about completely different types of schools that were in england than were today we we're totally acknowledging that but the lesson that i actually kind of got from it what i hear from it what, when i'm listening to it is just this idea that we must be willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that our kids are on the right track and even though we can't guarantee their future soul's destiny we can do a lot of things to help make sure they get in the right direction. If you read Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus, there are just so many reminders throughout that text to make sure you're leaving remembrances and memorials for the children to ask what that is so they can follow God. And here we see John Wesley just doing everything he can to say, you have got to take care of this because those children in your home are souls. Even though they look little and they may have a lot of questions and they may at times bother you or just be cute or whatever it is that is a soul that is on its way to heaven or hell and if you take anything more seriously than that and the, and the, and the soul of your spouse you are putting something more important than you are supposed to in front of you and that is not something that you should do and i think john wesley conveys that very well Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. The sermon was narrated by Ed Backow. Pastor Ed is a Washington State native, and he taught for 30-plus years at churches in Oregon, Washington, and Nebraska, currently in Warden, Washington. He has been serving with Warden Community Church since May of 2010. Make sure you are following Revive Studios on social media. We do church history of trivia nights on there. We do other things as well, so if you're not following along, you might miss out and if you remember at the beginning of this episode we gave somebody a shout out for their comment leave a comment on twitter facebook wherever you follow us and we might read yours on the next episode this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts this week on the truce podcast i talk with caitlin Shass, author of the liturgy of politics We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.